First Timothy chapter four, verses six through ten. Hear the word of the living God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come steady, awake, prepared. Lord, we ask that you would make us so. You would soften our hearts, that you would uncloud our minds, that our affections would be lit for Christ above all, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are softened by the work of the Spirit. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, would you speak to us today? Lord, would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Um, We will do a, a proper Puerto Rico presentation. Like we're working on a slideshow and we had a lot of the group half the group didn't get back until uh wednesday late and so we're trying to put some pictures together and uh maybe have some folks do do a testimony so they can tell you what they thought Um, but i tell you it was a a remarkable trip and we were only there i was there for with two other guys we were only there for a couple days for three days um before we had to get back and um but we saw a incredibly hospitable people and a, a community with that is prepared for any sort of work that we could do. Uh, they're prepared for mercy ministries, home health ministries, evangelism, discipleship, encouraging. There's stuff to do with the church. There's stuff to do in the neighborhood. And uh, by God's grace, I hope to uh, enter into a, a relationship with them. And all that would mean is that we start sending teams ourselves. We, we piggybacked on a team from uh, two other churches were represented. There was uh, representatives from Shandon and there were representatives from Grace Life Church. And it was, it was really awesome to see. Uh, God collaborating us together for the work of his uh, mission in Puerto Rico. And so much like he's doing with some of our ministries in Elgin, uh, that the work, especially in this day and age, we we have to forsake the idea uh, that it's us against other churches. Right. If that's ever been ever had a foothold in anybody's mind and needs to be confessed, repented of uh, and move on because we're on the same team. Uh, And so we. Spent most of our time there wet. It, it rained until we left, until um, we left on Sunday. And then they were able to do all this stuff. As, as Jeff said, you know, they got the slackers. The slackers got out of the way. 
and uh, they were able to get some real, real work done. I think they actually employed the horse that lived on the work site uh, for, for their, there was actually a horse that was there trying to steal Dustin's turkey sandwiches or whatever. Um, so all those things hopefully will be, will be in the pictures. And, uh, and I will say this, um, if you are able, uh, there is, if you're able to go, there's work to do. I know some people have medical stuff and you, you can't be that far away, um, but don't let your age uh, be restrictive. There are things to do. Uh, and so if we can work up a big enough team, we'll even go down there and split up and go different ways. Um, but I hope this will be something that we're able to, to, to do regularly. Uh, and anyways, we'll talk about all that stuff later. But um, back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. A big thanks to um, Pastor Sage for filling in the gap last week. Um, while I was away, I've, um, I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for our staff, uh, and I'm thankful for uh, the way the Lord is growing our staff. You'll hear about that uh, in soon, in probably a few weeks. Um, but I'm just grateful to serve here. I'm grateful for Blaney. And um, thank you. I haven't been able to say thank you, everyone, for your uh, pastor appreciation. I feel appreciated. Uh, I feel unworthy of such appreciation. Uh, there is a... You know, when Jesus tells the parable of, of the servants, you know, and you, you don't, you know, the, the servant is there to, to wait the tables. Um, the guy, when they come home, they don't say, you know, now you sit down and eat. The servant just says, I'm, I'm just doing my duty. I'm just doing what I'm told to do. Uh, and, and that's what that's the case for me. And I hope it would be the case for you that you're just doing what the Lord is telling you to do. Um, but um, jumping back into First Timothy, chapter four, uh, this has been uh, an eye opening experience. This has happened twice now uh, within the last few months, right? Wednesday nights, we, we just finished up the, uh, the, the epistle of James, or as I like to correct it, the epistle of Jacob. Um, it's, it's Iakabos in Greek, so it's Jacob. Um, so now you have a, a, I don't know, a feather in your cap that you know that. It's really, it's okay, you can call him James. But we finished up James, and that was really eye-opening. And this is why... Uh, we, I, we, in our ministry, we try our best. Now we'll, we'll do different things through the year, but, but our meat and potatoes is we're going to come to a book in the Bible and we're going to walk through a book in the Bible, uh, because it's much for your sake as for my sake, uh, because I come and I have to wrestle with passages of scripture that uh, I've, I've heard, I've read this. I don't know how many times, you know, being a pastor, I feel like I read first and second Timothy, uh, monthly, you know, I just come back and I'm like, what am I supposed to do again? What do I do in this situation? Let me go back to the pastoral epistles. Um, but this has been really enlightening and, and, and it's really beginning to renovate my thinking, uh, in, in ways that I, I didn't forecast. And so this is, this is why we keep coming back to the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. God continues to speak and he continues to, to shape us. By his word. You remember, this is, and this, this is why your personal intake of the Holy Scriptures is of paramount importance as well as for our church. When Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John 17, right? John 17 is awesome. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of it. But in verse 17 of 17, he says to his father, this is the eternal son praying to the father. He says, Saint, talking about us, his disciples and those who are going to believe from the apostles ministry. He says, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the word. That Christian, you do not grow up into the image of Jesus apart from the word. We as a church, 
will not grow into who we are, who we ought to be, what we should do apart from the word. It cannot be a neglected grace. I mean, imagine what we're saying. When, and I, this is not the point of this sermon, but when you say, I don't have time for God's word, or I'm just going to kind of blip over, I'm going you know, to do the whole um, open and pray and point out a verse and you know, something that was about the Hittites, you're going to take it to apply to your life and whatever. Um, when you do a disservice to your time in the word, it's like you're hanging up on God. Have you ever had somebody hang up on you? You've been in a fight, you know, and somebody just goes. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to show you. Okay, but that's what we do. God, I don't have time. I feel like I've got to, I'm going to grow in these other ways. And we hang up on God and to go back to, you know, whatever else we think that we're going to, we're going to learn and grow from and find satisfaction from. And so we, we keep coming back to God's word. And, and in fact, this is what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. You know, don't forsake the public reading of Scripture. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's in 2 Timothy. But keep coming back to the Bible. Keep coming back to what God has said. It's over and over again in his discourse with, in 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, because... In chapter 4, we have this, as we said a couple weeks ago, we have this light shine upon the false teachers that had infiltrated or arisen in Ephesus. Now, just kind of a background, right? Remember where we were? Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul sends his emissary, Timothy, his, his disciple, his child in the faith. He deploys him to work in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a significant city. It's a significant church. It's planted by the Apostle Paul. It shows up in the book of Revelation. But Paul, in Acts chapter 20, shortly after the church was born, he comes to the church in Acts chapter 20 and says, uh, he says a lot of great things there, but, but he says, fierce wolves will arise within you. And within a decade, that prophecy, his prediction came true. That by the time that Timothy arrives, he is sent there to instruct certain people. This is chapter 1, if you remember. He's sent there to instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. Not to be headlining myths and speculations. That his job is to come with the pure milk of the Word of God and to confront false teaching and to build up the church with it. Do you understand that God has given the Holy Scriptures to the life of the church for our edification, for our building up? This is why we centerpiece it. Right? This is why we preach it. This is why we read it. This is why we teach it in Sunday school. This is why we'll have a, a Bible reading plan in January that we do as a church. Because we have to be shaped by the word so that one, we can recognize, call out, diagnose false teaching, false doctrine when it shows up. And the devastating thing is that it doesn't always show up from the outside. Oftentimes, like what happened in Ephesus, it shows up from the inside. And if you're not looking, it's going to be like you're, you're standing on a wall ready for battle. You're, you're your shield is in one hand, your sword is in the other, and someone's going to slip up behind you with a little six-inch dagger and stick you in the ribs. That's what false teaching is in the life of the church when it rises from within the ranks. 
So the mighty warrior will bleed out and be worthless for what God has called them to do. And it is of so important, okay? It's so, and I know you're thinking, well, surely I've had pastors say this to me. Um, when they're talking about you know, their church or they're talking about interviewing staff, he's like, I just assume that everybody has good doctrine. I just assume it. And I felt like, you know, I don't need to be Nostradamus who was wrong a lot. I don't need to be a prophet or a son of a prophet to say that's going to be a train wreck at some point. That's going to be a train wreck at some point. These false teachers, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they'd, they've come in and they were, they were corrupting, if you remember where we were, they were corrupting the doctrine of creation. They were corrupting the doctrine of creation. That they were, uh, these in the, through the insincerity of liars in chapter two, I mean, verse two of chapter four, uh, deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons were being poured into the church through these false teachers, and they were forbidding marriage and foods that God had created to be received with thanksgiving. They were attacking good things, creational mandates that God had given for all people to be enjoyed. False teaching, and this is so apropos, it's so applicable to our present moment. Where is our greatest false teaching arising? It is from the corruption of the doctrine of creation. Did God really say, I'm going to make you male and female? Did God really say, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife? Did God really say that? That's the voice of Satan in our culture right now. The doctrines of demons. And there are too many churches who say, I want to love all people, which, of course, who's going to sign up and say, I'd rather not love all people. In the name of some distorted view of tolerance. And what we do when we, when we let those things into the church and we see whole denominations wrestling with this good, solid, I'm not even talking about the ones who've lost their way, but good, solid, biblical denominations wrestling with this. And if we allow it, it is that dude sneaking up to the guy on the wall with a six-inch blade, stabbing him in the, between the ribs. And you will see churches bleed out, so to speak. You'll see denominations bleed out. So they're corrupting the doctrine of creation. And, and so Paul wants to say, you, you need to get ahead of that. For everything created, this principle in verse 4, everything created by God is good. That this world, as God made it, is good. The doctrine of creation, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that is our orienting principle. That orients us to what this world is and how we ought to be in it. This world is not an accident. It is not the random collection of chaotic forces that somehow bred intricacy and design and life. It's none of those things. This world is made by the personal God to make people who personally know him. Who are made in his image. Who are designed for his glory. And his glory is not at odds with your joy. Do you understand? Living in God's design is the best life. Living in God's design, in God's world, is God's best design. Think about Adam and Eve. 
right? They ought to live in God's world as God told them to live in His world. And what happens when they say no to that? It not only jacks them up individually, it breaks their relationship with one another, it breaks their relationship with God, and it breaks their relationship with creation and with work and with childbearing and and with life. And yet what we do in our sin is that we, we continually buck against what God is, has designed. We continually push against his, his, what is obvious, guardrails. Marriage, parenting, work, kids. We, just want, we want to push and push and push and say we can be our own gods. We can be our own kings, our own queens. We can, we can find our own way. And that is a product of a worldview, a, a nature of understanding of the world, right? If the world is simply chaotic forces coming together to create some sort of order, then that means I can come into the chaos of, chaos of my life as one who is sovereign and supreme, and I can instill in it what I want it to be. Rather than the doctrine of creation is God has made the world, you are not God, I am not God, I do not have creator rights to do with my life as I would please, I must do with it as He would please, and that is my greatest joy. Our culture continually tells us to buck against God's design, corrupting the doctrine of creation. And what what was once a a far-out satellite of teaching has come to the very heart of the gospel presentation in our day. And so if you're going to understand the gospel, if you're going to believe the gospel, and if you're going to share the gospel with others, you have to begin with creation. This is our Father's world. Let me ne'er forget. So he comes to Timothy, and after this corrective principle, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What an aspiration. Let me be that. A good servant of Christ. And what is it that makes Timothy a good servant? Is if he takes good doctrine and lays it before the people of God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained or nourished. Some translations have it there. Trained or nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Timothy has imbibed the truths of the faith. He's bought into right and proper doctrine and teaching. And now he is bringing it to the church in Ephesus saying, this is what you need to believe. Don't abstain from all these things that are meant for your joy in the Lord, but follow God's design. So and throughout this chapter, there's several times where, where Paul says these things, these things. And it's not just the doctrine of creation, but it is a highlight You will be a good servant if you lay these things down. So how, how else ought you to conduct your ministry? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Remember chapter 1. This is what the false teachers were pubbing. They had a different narrative of the world. A, a irreverent, silly myth. Myths are things that give shape to the world. The narration, the narrative that you buy into gives shape to your reality. If the world is this chaotic place... Made from ooze and goos and, and booze. I'll say it. It just rhymed. It felt good when it came out. If, if we're just from ooze, you know, 
then that's going to affect what you see and do in the world. You understand that there is an overarching narrative that you're buying into. There's an overarching narrative that our culture wants you to buy into. And for the Christian, you have to combat that, not with just particulars of this is, you know, look at all the evidence for the New Testament. Look at all the evidence for the empty tomb. But you say, no, we have a totally different story to tell. This is God's world from beginning, middle and end. And this is what he's doing in it. And this is what he has done in his son, Jesus. Don't fall off following silly myths. Don't get distracted, Timothy. Train yourself for godliness. And when you hear godliness, this is what has had, one of the things that's had to be kind of reshaped in me. Because you remember, the false teachers, they're, lo- they're presenting a false gospel that's marked not by license. Their false gospel isn't, hey, go do whatever you want. This sort of laissez-faire morality where you can just sort of define good and fun and, and just have fun. Which is, that's sort of the, the, the way of our culture. You kind of fall off in license. Do whatever you want. No, their false teaching was led them to constrained living. To a form of asceticism. Asceticism just means severe living. They're not getting married, right? They're not, they're not enjoying all the foods before them. That they're presenting a picture of religion that is very severe, that's very harsh. And what happens when people pub that to you? And this is how cults work, by the way. It feels like you're upgrading, right? You're stepping into something more serious when you say, I've got to do all of these things. I've got to, I've got to do this and I can't, have, I can't have this. I can't have caffeine and I can't have... You know, prime rib. I'm sure there's one out there that says you can't have prime rib. And you can't, you can't do this and you can't do this. And you have to do this and you have to do this. And all it is is that it's serving our, our self-made desire of self-salvation. So godliness, it does mean that you have to die to sin and abound to righteousness. That you need to be about the, what the old Puritans called the mortification of, of sin. But at the same time, godliness also means... That while you forsake the anti-creation that is sin, sin is anti-creation. It's anti-design. You reject that so that you can live in the world as, you're, as you ought to live. That you enjoy the gifts that you, you should enjoy in the way that you should enjoy them. And, and in this way, the good news of Jesus orients us not in a, just a spiritual existence, but the gospel of Jesus orients us for this world. Now, there's a million nuances that I want to pack on this that we don't have time. But the gospel teaches us to live in this world as we ought to live in this world. To enjoy the things of this world as we ought to enjoy them because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all meant for his glory. As I talked about two weeks ago, it's the theater of the glory of God. The gospel frees you up to enjoy the world as it is. But even more so to live in the world as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Where there's no more sorrow or sickness. You're able to forgive. You're able to lay your burdens down. You're able not to be anxious and burdened. Fearful. Because this is God's world. Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, um, the older guys, 
saw bodily training as this outward religious rigor. If you were to go read old, you know, reformational Puritan commentators, uh, they're going to say that this is the, the, all the, the smells and the bells of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the, the, the bending and the altars and the, all the, the show and the pomp and the circumstance of that man-made sort of religion. And obviously, you probably see this as, you know, bodily training as like going and doing CrossFit. I know all of you are CrossFit uh, aficionados. Um, just I could see it. No. Going to hit in the gym or going walking around or whatever it is. You know, bodily exercise. And I think both have their merit. It's probably the latter rather than the former. But, um, you know, bodily training is worthwhile, but you need to train yourself for godliness because godliness has promised both in this life and the next. You can train up your body as well as you want. You can have the best uh, waistline, the smallest belt that you should. You could fall into the right block on a BMI body mass index thing. And, and someday that body's still going to lay in the ground. That doesn't mean that you should neglect your body. doesn't mean that you shouldn't take care of it, all that kind of stuff. Um, but if that's all you're concerned about, then one day that body's going to either going to break down. Um, it is either it's going to break down or it's just going to die. Godliness attunes you not just for this life, to enjoy this life as you ought, but it prepares you for heaven. Living in God's world now, as he's designed, following the lordship of Jesus, prepares you for the new heavens and the new earth, for the world to come, for the life to come. It's it's teaching you now that your feet won't get too sore walking on the streets of gold. That your eyes won't dilate too much when you behold the glory of God. Now, all those things are going to drive us to our knees in the praise of God. But living godly lives now, forsaking the anti-creation of sin, abounding in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, trying to follow him and teach other people about him, that you are preparing yourself and others, not just you're, you're making things better now, but you are preparing yourself for new heavens and new earth. If this world is all there is, and you think that somehow you're going to magically appreciate that world, then that's not the case. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That, that phrase appears like four times in First and Second Timothy. This is, a, this is Paul's use of a highlighter, right? If you use highlighters in your Bible or underline. If you underline in your Bible, can I say this? I don't have a lot of time. This is important. If you underline in your Bible, use a ruler. Use a straight edge for the love. Y'all don't get it, right? You come and you open up some Bible and like, it's like somebody's you know, trying to underline it. And you're like, I can't even look at this thing. Is that just, just me? It's just me. I'm sorry. So this is Paul's highlighter. This is a tr- trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that godliness is of value. It's not valued by the culture. It's not valued by the world. It's not going to be valued by... Groups that normally recognize people, you're not going to win, win an Emmy for godliness. You're not even going to win a Dove Award for, for godliness. But it is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that you need to take God at his word. That the investment of training yourself for godliness, forsaking the anti-creation of sin, abounding in God's design and the righteousness of Jesus, obeying what God says by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit, it is good. It's life-giving. It's joy-giving. 
You, you begin to understand that God, Christ's claim on you isn't to deprive you of joy. How often have we heard that about God? He just, you know, all these do's and don'ts and I just want to have fun. You don't know it. You don't know joy without Jesus. You think you do. You've got some shadow of it. There's true passing pleasure in sin in this world. But dear, when it does not measure up to the fullness of joy that's at the right hand of God. For to this end, verse 10, we strive, we strive for godliness. We strive to live in this world as, a, as, as little Christ's. Through the trials and through the ups and through the downs, through the mountaintops and through the valleys, we want to live as Christ would have us to live. And we labor and strive. This is work. This is work. Not that you're saved by works, right? Can we not have, like, it's not automatically legalism, right? We live, like, every time we start talking about the gospel, well, I don't want legalism. Mm-mm, it's all of grace. There's a great verse that kind of nukes that idea. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10. And Paul says, I worked harder than everybody else, but it wasn't me, but it was the grace of God in me. That the grace of God in Paul's life made him get on ships that shipwrecked to endure beatings and stonings, to endure rejection, to pick it up and go to the next city, to keep going, laboring, working, striving, starving because of the grace of God. And evidence of the grace of God in your life isn't just a perpetual, like, Joker-esque smile. So I'm like, never mind. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus right now. Um, like some, some famous preachers out there that don't really preach the truth. But, but it's not like that. Yes, you have a joy, 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 joy down in your heart, okay? But grace shows up in the grind that you wake up early because Jesus is worth it. You, you round up all your kids and you make it to church on Sunday because Christ is worth it. Because you know of His grace in your life. That you forsake the old patterns of addiction and of compulsion and places that you used to self-medicate yourself to avoid the, the difficulties of this world. You forsake that clinging rather to Christ. And when you begin to live this way, then all of a sudden you're ready to labor and strive. Maybe he's leading you. Maybe some of y'all are meant to be doing what I'm doing. Some of you young men. And you need to count the cost. This is not for the faint of heart. There's a million other things that aren't for the faint of heart either. I'm not saying that. But some of you, he might be calling you to the mission field. And you're, you're thinking, how am I going to have a retirement? How am I going to do this and how am I going to do that? Do not justify yourself out of the call of God. But some of you, the rest of you, many of you, he's calling to live faithful lives where you are right now. Where you live, work, and play. You're going to do your work for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Because work is a, listen, work is a good gift. The difficulty of work is from sin. Work is a design gift. It's creation. You're meant to work. You're meant to make things beautiful. You're meant to be an advocate for the true. You're meant to be a proponent of the good. 
the good, the true, and the beautiful. You want to see those things abound in your workplace and in your neighborhood. Do what you do for the glory of God. And good work usually takes hard work. Y'all know this. And if you're doing it just for a paycheck, then it's, you're going to be kind of, uh, I don't know. But if you're doing it for the glory of God, do it to showcase the goodness of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the truth of Christ. We labor and strive. And you can apply that to anything. To being a father or a mother, being a stay-at-home mom, to being a neighbor. Do those things for Christ's sake. And that's going to take laboring and striving. But you're trying to live in the world according to the gospel of Christ as you ought. But not only do we live because of what Christ has done, because of the grace of God that's working in us, but we have hope set on the living God. We're able to labor and strive in this fallen, broken world. And oftentimes, your labor, your striving, it just seems like it just goes away. It's like a fog on the Saluda River or the Watery River. It just, by noon, it just doesn't seem to matter. But you're willing to labor and to strive because of hope. That you have a sure and steady hope. You have a hope that's gone through the curtain, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, like an anchor for the soul in the Lord Jesus. We have a sure and a steady hope that this world is not all that's going to be. We have a sure and steady hope that death loses. We have a sure and steady hope that Satan will finally get it fully in the teeth. That all of him and all of the demons will be cast into the lake of fire and there will be an establishing of a new heavens and a new earth. Believe on it, Christian. Bank on it. Live that life now. And you will shine as lights in a crooked generation. We have hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Savior of all people, if we're seeing this, there's, a lot of, there's, there's really two ways to understand this, and I'm going to take one way. It doesn't mean the other way is illegitimate. I just think the first way is better because of the context. He is the Savior of all people. The word Savior or soter, um, it comes from the Greek word sozo. Don't worry about it. Uh, but it can mean make well. He can mean preserve. And if this is in the context of cre- the doctrine of creation, which it is, right? From, the, from chapter, I mean, verse 4 on down. If you're laying these things, if you're talking about creation, you're orienting people to the world that, that they're in, that God is the preserver, He is the sustainer, He is the Savior of all people. That if there's any person in the world, they're made in the image of God, they're upheld by the sustaining power of God, whether they acknowledge it or not. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know if I... That's, that's how a lot of historic guys, commentators took this. The other way to take it is to say, Jesus is the, uh, the salvific Savior of all people. Meaning that, that meaning something that the New Testament doesn't teach. He, God is, uh, the, the gospel is not universalistic, right? Not everyone is saved. It's apparent. It's apparent from the, the, from the whole testimony of the Bible, really. From the testimony of the New Testament, not everybody gets saved. So if he's the Savior of the whole world, it's not universalism. 
So either, either the preserving, he preserves all people, it's not universalism, or it's a universal offer, which I also believe in. That Jesus is the one and only Savior that anyone can have hope in, right? Jesus is the one and only Savior soteriologically, that's a big word, but, but salvifically, meaning that you get to heaven only in Jesus. So both those are true, but I think it, I lean toward the, the, the former because of the context. Uh, that he is the preserver of all people and he saves especially those, he preserves especially those who believe. That by grace, through faith, we are brought through the fire into the new heavens and the new earth rather than residing in judgment apart from God. So what is this to say? What, what, do, we, what do we do with all this? Train yourself for godliness and godliness is true Happiness. Godliness in God's world is true happiness. Otherwise, you are spending the entirety of your life trying to swim upstream. Going against the grain of God's design and of God's world. And each step drives you away from your joy, even as sin has its fleeting pleasures. Train yourself for godliness to live in God's world. Saved, redeemed, and hopeful of the world that he is going to come about, that he's going to bring about. And let that world, the hope of future glory, infuse what you do today. Go home, take a nap for the glory of God, knowing that you can, y'all laughing. I say you do it because I'm not going to be able to do it. You do it for my sake. But you nap for the glory of God because you have a rest in the Lord Jesus. Spend some time with your family, pointing them to Jesus together. Sing some songs together. Sing the songs of Zion. You wake up and you go to work tomorrow and you're going to pursue the good, the true and the beautiful for Christ's sake. Because one day everything that's wrong and broken and twisted in this world is going to be straightened out in new heavens and a new earth. And you might be you're, you're giving a, just a prophetic demonstration of what God is doing in this world. Train yourself for godliness. Leave off sin. Mortify it. Kill it. If there are habits in your life, Christian, that you know right now, that's not the way it ought to be. This is, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not here to try to lay the hammer on you. But God's convicting power in the spirit is for your good. Train yourself for godliness. That means you might need to set up new habits. Whatever the things are that are sparking you away from God. Right? If, you, if you're struggling with contentment. And your discontentment brews because of the comparison that you always place between yourself and other people. Maybe you should quit social media for a while. Or forever. It's a discontentment machine. Look at all the stuff that people have. Everybody's putting their best face forward. A way of training yourself for godliness. To be content in the world that, the Lord, God, that God has you. Maybe that's an application for you. Maybe in your, in your marriage. And again, the death by comparison. And you get so busy running the race and running ragged that you don't have time between you and your spouse. 
We'll spend some time imaging Christ's love for the church. Something that's supremely important to the Savior. And spend some time together. Couch these things as training yourself up in godliness. And godliness is eminently practical. And it is the avenue of true joy and true happiness. For some of you, you need to leave off not only sin, but you need to leave off your rebellion. You know what I'm talking about when I say you've been running your life upstream against the grain. It feels like your entire life is just you on 40 grit sandpaper. And you feel like you've got to chase your own way. And as you do, you leave more and more of yourself behind. Today's the day you can be made whole. Jesus will make you whole. He will forgive you. He will make you righteous in Christ. And he will bring you into his family and set you up in this world as you ought to be. Jesus can make you whole. But surrender to him. Cry out to him in faith. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father of glory, we thank you. We thank you for the goodness of this world. Even fallen and plagued by sin as we still are. This world is inescapably, inescapably bears your marks. So would we delight in your design? Would we train ourselves by your spirit and godliness to forsake the anti-creation of sin that we might abound in the creative righteousness of Christ living out who we have been made by grace? God, if there are some who have never trusted, if they've never called out to you, never believed upon you. And even now they feel desperate. Holy Spirit, would you meet them in that despair? And that despairing soil of that heart would hope blossom as gospel faith takes root. Would you give them grace to call out to Christ? Would you build your church that we might be a people godly in all areas, in all spheres of life, demonstrating you, your world, and the hope that we have in Christ. So God, accomplish your will now through your work, through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond?